Welcome back to Cinema Adventure. We're a movie podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a film. This week we're talking about Anna Biller's The Love Witch from 2016. I'm your host, Aiden Walker. And I am your other host, Blake Peterson. So Blake, this is such a Blake pick. Oh, well, thank you. This is such a Blake pick. <laughs> you're like, I want to do The Love Witch. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And you were saying, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. It's been released in the last 10 years. That's you're really like- hyping it up. And... It was such a Blake pick. I was not surprised at all while I was watching it. What does that mean? Like you weird? have a really it was weird, and you just have this style that you really like. So I mean, we'll get into it. But what made you like? What is it about this film that makes you like it? Why did you choose it? Well, I think when I first saw it, I was so taken aback by it stylistically. I think I, as a lot of people do, when you first watch it, you're very overwhelmed by its style. This movie looks and feels a lot like. Um, this exploitation features of the 1960s, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I guess the original (laughs) Valley of the Dolls movie. And so I was really struck by how much it it was very similar to those movies. And I really enjoy those, even though they're not necessarily great. It is an era that I find really artistically interesting. So I like that aspect, but I was really, I've become kind of a bigger Anna Biller fan, not even just because she has so many movies, but just, you know, following her on Twitter and kind of getting to know her as a filmmaker, just realizing how much time and care she puts into her movies and so kind of getting to know this movie more I wanted to revisit it for this podcast and then I've kind of found too that it's a lot deeper than I thought it was when I first watched it so that's been really interesting too kind of watching it through this kind of a revised look I'm excited for you to fill me in on some of these aspects of when you say that it's, it's deeper than you initially thought yes. I saw all over the place on the internet when I was trying to find a copy of this movie to watch mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of this sleeper hit very feminist movie yeah i feel like it's definitely become a cult classic already like i know it seems kind of premature to even call it yeah, it's only been classic. out for not even fully two years yet yeah not even but it already has a very dedicated fan base biller's only made one other movie and that one's called viva from 2007 so it's just been these two movies for her but has already built up this very large fan base which i think you know, she's deserving of. I'm really excited to see what she does in the future. So The Love Witch was released in 2016. Yeah. It was directed, written, and edited, edited by and Anna Biller. Yeah, she also did the production design and all the costumes. She did all the costumes the as well? the paintings you see in the movie, she did pretty much all of them. I think she, like, maybe commissioned a couple of people, but she did, like, everything in this movie. It took her about seven and a half years to get it you know, completed from start to finish. You know, I think it's crazy. There's this whole idea of auteurship, right? These people mm-hmm. who are usually dudes who are really, really famous for having their kind of stylistic movies yeah. and they have their one really specific thing that they do and they're like, you know, revered for it. I doubt all of these dudes were editing no. and painting and doing costume design. So yeah, that's she's awesome. Like, she's odd to her the capital A. Yeah. She's so talented. And capital the rest of the letters, I guess. Yeah, no, maybe, like, yeah, capital them all. Put a little trademark <laughs> sign at the end. <laughs> she does it all. <laughs> well, that, that makes me interested in watching the other film now. I know I haven't seen it either, but I'm really curious. Because she says that one is more of... Because that one is similar in the way that it has kind of a throwback style. Uh, but that one is more, like, directly based off exploitation movies. And I think some of the shots even she tried to recreate old Playboy photographs as well. And that one is kind of about how the sexual liberation of the 1960s was actually kind of toxic for women. But that one was like more intentionally trying to kind of subvert this genre. Whereas this one, it sounds like, even though it looks a lot like these exploitation features, it was actually just a movie that she wanted to make. Kind of not really damning necessarily, but just discussing the effect objectification can have on women. And I guess 
a lot of the stylistic stuff we see was not necessarily she wasn't trying to copy anything it was just she's been influenced so much by old hollywood and european movies and italian giallo thrillers that it just happened to kind of infiltrate her style so i'd be curious to see what a movie that is more intentionally you know paying tribute to something as opposed to this i haven't seen any pictures of her really read much about her i guess but yeah. how like how old is she i'm curious did she grow up watching these movies or i'm not positive i think she's in her 30s but it sounds like when so I, she's pretty young when i read interviews she kind of describes herself as she was always kind of the weird kid watching old movies which i can relate to because i've yeah i've been watching movies non-stop since i was like in middle school so definitely relate to that <laughs> Why don't you try and give some kind of a plot summary for this one? It's kind of hard to give a plot summary because I feel like this movie's not, I don't know, the narrative is very interesting. But I guess for the most part, it's about this woman named Elaine. She's a mysterious woman who we find out is a witch. And she moves to, is it San Francisco? Where it's is Eure- she going to? Eureka, California. Eureka, California. She moves Which to Eure- they never say, but you can see there's <laughs> yeah. street signs and stuff. And it says it's in Eureka. Yeah. And she moves there. And basically, we follow her as she kind of seduces and destroys a series of men. And I don't really know how to describe it any way other than that. I think that's a pretty good summary. They go to a a renaissance fair at one point. There's a renaissance fair at one point, yeah. There's like a... Which is in the middle of the woods. (laughs) Some wild stuff. Yeah, there's like a horseback riding session where the leading actress, Samantha Robinson, who she plays Elaine, who's the protagonist, uh, she and her, one of her love interests, like ride these horses in matching khakis, which I really enjoy. Which, of course, they do. (laughs) But it's mostly about that, and um, yeah, the whole movie is very, like, technicolored, very colorful. It sounds like she, Biller, worked really closely with the cinematographer M. David Mullen, who is known for being able to really, I don't know, almost perfectly recreate the the looks of classic movies. And this one is definitely, it is a pretty low budget, but it does, there are moments where you do feel like you are in the 60s, even though it takes place in the present day. I did watch this movie with friends, as usual. Uh-huh. I'm making an educational experience for my for my <laughs> for my buddies, and we were watching it. One of them keyed into the fact pretty quickly that it was filmed present day because you know you yeah. see some modern make cars, even though all the protagonists are driving around '60s vehicles or uh-huh. earlier. But the other friend was confused when I said, "Oh, this movie came out in 2016." They were like, "What?" Yeah, they didn't believe me. So. Yeah. It's so perfectly recreated. It very much like the is. color just looks like a '60s movie, which I really like, and it kind of reminds me too of even I don't know if you've seen the Brady Bunch movie in the '90s, where the main characters are like their minds they're in the '70s basically, but everything around them is 1995. So it's kind of like that, where it's like you have these old-fashioned characters in the middle of this modern setting, which I think is a fun juxtaposition. I have not seen that. <laughs> it's so good. I'm, I actually I'm like, not up on the Brady Bunch filmography. I like the sequel a little bit better. To really? Be honest. Yeah. You're so well watched. Well, that's the classic. That's the one that has the George Glass gag that's been really been a popular meme for the last couple of years. I don't even know what that is. What, Aiden? What are you doing? Well, I will. Gotta watch it. George Glass gag. Is that what it is? There's like George Glass. There's and then well that whole conversation it has like Marsha saying sure Jan. Have you seen that? No. You've never seen the screenshot of her saying sure. Why don't you send me some links and I'll put them in the episode description so anybody else who is like me and doesn't know what you're talking about. I have lots of screenshots on my phone from that movie is like reaction pictures. Good. Lots of Marsha looking mad or Jan looking disappointed. (laughs) <laughs> I'm always I'm constantly impressed with you because you have such a defined aesthetic for the way that you text. <laughs> I show it I've, I've shown it to a couple of friends and I'm like this is how Blake texts people and they're like he sticks to this. You freak really me does. out though because you do like full sentences and like 
like just like perfect writing and it like I never do that it stresses me out you know out. it's funny because I text you so much now now I have s started to not do that so much and I will text other <laughs> other people in in kind of your pigeon texting english with the I'll you know insert numbers instead of letters yeah it's like an homage two. we'll say it's an or, homage to prince or something that's it, maybe that's what we'll <laughs> say it is although I do put the letter I rather than writing E-Y-E. Did you ever see on Twitter how Carrie Fisher's account was, rest in peace? Yes. Hers was like, I feel like, the way I text, but on acid. She, she had transcended. Over, overkill. She did yeah. like one tweet, I remember it was really long, but every letter was an emoji because she used like the block that has a letter mm -hmm. in it. It's like... It was like she was making a tweet, but cutting up magazines and writing a ransom yeah. note. She lives on a different planet. She certainly does. She was the greatest. Yeah, she was the great. greatest. Present the greatest. <laughs> Where were we in terms of this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I could talk about Carrie Fisher and I her really, whole life story all I day. I could. I could. But we're talking about the Love Witch. We are. So we'll get back to that. <laughs> if we're not careful, somebody's going to send us a witch's bottle. Ooh, that'd be exciting. Bottle, I would love to be cursed. I always wanted like a cursed amulet or something. Yeah. So you could what? I don't know. Just to like say I have one. Remember remember when we did the episode on Belly and we had a Hana on and she told yes. us about the tarot reading? I oh, would yeah. I would love to have a tarot reading done. It'd be great if she came in uh -huh. and we got our tarot read with her. I still think about that. Me too, all the time. I'm always like, I need someone I know to do my tarot. So I like, no. Because there's a lot of tarot cards in this movie. And I was thinking about it a lot. And I was like, I need to get my thing read. One of my close friends that I was watching the movie with does a little bit of tarot Ooh. and knows what all the cards mean and can mm -hmm. do some of the kind of some of the readings. And when she does the, she does the first reading, I think it's in the coffee, like on a coffee table or something. Mm -hmm. This, I think the first or second card she flips over is the tower. And mm -hmm. this friend was like, <gasps> like audible gas. I was like, what, what does it mean? And they were like, the tower is like the worst one. It's, the, it it's such a bad card. They were like, it can be worse than death. It's <laughs> like, what? whoa, dude. What's worse than death? I don't know. Maybe like what oh. happens after death if you're a bad person, I guess. Maybe. But I feel like that's part of death at the same time. Probably. <laughs> anyway, I have a question for you, Blake. Great. Yeah. Why are there so many English people in this movie when it takes place in Eureka, California? It sounds like that was an accident. I had read that Biller when she casted the primary English character is Trish, right? That's her name, who plays Elaine's realtor. I guess that was just kind of an accidental thing. She just auditioned and just made sense for the part, I guess. And it was, like, fun in a way because the main character is so, like, not feminist, I guess. And Trish is very feminist. And so I guess it just adds to that big contrast that she's English on top of it. Which I always, she's just different. Yeah. I always like that in movies when there's just, like, a random, like, English character or something. I, when they're just, there's not really a clear reason why. I mean, it usually is probably just because they happen to live there. But you're so not used to that in movies, just having it be unaddressed, that it's always a fun little seasoning. I'm happy that the Trish character wasn't your typical bad guy with a British accent because that's generally what happens to characters that's in American true. movies who have British accents as their bad guys. They're yeah, like British or European or really anything that's not American. It's yeah. like, uh-oh, they're going to be a villain or killed or something. Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, like, look at all the Star Wars movies. Like, everybody in the Empire is English. Oh, I never noticed yeah. that. Or wow. they all have the English accents. <laughs> and Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he was noble. <laughs> I'd say so He's myself. a wizard. It's fine. Yeah. I guess I should ask you because I mean you came into this movie you've never seen it before what was your because I know when I watched it for the first time just getting used to it it really like takes a while because it is this technicolor world everyone is doing the presentational acting style from 
vintage Hollywood. Like it just, it's very different from everything. So how did you adjust to that or did you adjust to that? I didn't adjust to it at all. I, you know, I expected, <laughs> I expected it to be a little bit that way. I mm-hmm. didn't expect it to be to the degree that it was. Cause yeah. in the movie, it's like even an hour and a half in, Basically, every scene with dialogue is really harsh expositional dialogue. Yeah. They are, they don't <laughs> let you figure out what the stories of these characters are through context or from the way that they talk. It's all literally the character saying what their backstory is. <laughs> it's really intense. You know, I was thinking about it in contrast to something really recent that I just watched. I mean, I guess this is also very recent, yeah. but of an older style, right? I've been watching the Donald Glover show, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And there's a really great scene where the character, uh, Vanessa in that show, she goes out to dinner with a friend and they have this whole conversation and there's never a moment where they're like, oh yeah, you remember back in college where we did this and I was a witch and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> you just kind of pick up on what their relationship is from the ways that they talk to each mm-hmm. other. One of them will roll their eyes when the other one says something or you know, yada, yada, yada. You get the context, you know what their relationship is. And this one, it's very much explained. It's like, oh yes, Trish, you are my landlord and I am a witch <laughs> and I do the witchcraft. Yeah. So kind of getting used, just, it was so, it's so jarring to have that because uh-huh. I guess we're just more used to the naturalistic mm-hmm. kind of acting that we have now. But yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a little bit of a detriment because of kind of the length of the movie and how yeah, much it of it there is. I think the movie is definitely too long. Even though I love it, I remember I kind of got to the 90 minute point and I was like, okay, this is probably over. And then there was like a half hour and I was like, That's oh. exactly what we did. We were like, we're wow, like, we must be getting close. We're at the weird carnival. We're at, we're all, we gotta be at the end. Yeah. We wiggle the mouse on the computer, right? And it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah. we have. 35 more no, minutes to it go. does go a little bit long, I think. But I think that's that kind of always happens, though, I think, when a movie is so stylistically overbearing. Even if you have really good content, there is a point where it's like, okay, there's I can only take this for so long, <laughs> you know? So I think if the movie had been 90 minutes or less, it would have maybe worked a little more for me. But I think know, it's still great. I could compare this film with a movie that looks really similar to it that we've watched together for mm-hmm. this podcast, which is Suspiria, which I loved. Yeah. What an odd movie. And it it looks very much the same. Yeah. I mean, of course, this movie is really heavily inspired by Argento and those kind of directors. But, you know, Suspiria has that really striking technicolor tone. Everything yeah. is bright and colorful, kind of psychedelic, really red. But the dialogue is really sparse. Yeah. It's really visual. And you kind of you understand what's going on through mostly visual cues and how the camera is working. But this one, you mm-hmm. get mostly really wide angles and it's all exposition. Yeah. So I feel like you kind of lose some of the power of the imagery because of that. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that just because, well, I think even thinking about Suspiria, I mean, that dialogue is horrible. Oh, oh it's very bad. It's but there's not. But I don't feel there's like less of it. it. I think there's less of it. I guess there's less of it, but I just think it adds to it. But I think... One of the things that I wonder about this movie is, I mean, Biller's talked so much about how she does get really irritated when people compare this movie to sexploitation movies. But I think the issue is with the dialogue. I mean, clearly she's trying to kind of have this stilted style that matches old Hollywood, but because it is really expositional and sometimes kind of clunky, it just inevitably is really similar to sexploitation movies. And so, you know, I can understand saying, like, this wasn't my intention, but I think that adds to that confusion of... You know, she's not paying tribute, but it ha- like almost everything about it is pretty much the same. So that is interesting. I'd love to see like her writing process, you know, like how she because I just feel like writing dialogue like this, it's almost like a gift because it has to 
be kind of awkward, but in like a knowing way, like it's very, it seems like it would be kind of intricate to do that. The moments in the movie where the dialogue is really self-aware is amazing and mm-hmm. hilarious and it yeah. works really well. But the moments where it falls flat, I think it falls very flat and it yeah. can be a little bit of a bit of an eye roller at points. Yeah. But I don't know, the way that some of the jokes are delivered in this movie are fantastic. Yeah. The joke where the two men come upon the witch's bottle, which is a bottle that a witch makes to curse someone. <laughs> and in this case, the bottle is filled with urine and a used tampon. And the two kind of dumb guy police officers show up mm-hmm. and they find it and they're looking at it and they go, what is this? I don't know. I've never seen one of those in my <laughs> life. Right. Right. After there's a bit of dialogue where they say, oh, you know, the average man hasn't yeah. ever seen a tampon in his life. So that kind of easy setup set up with that very obvious mm-hmm. joke payoff works very well. No, yeah, it works very well. I think the comedy is really good. So we, for the most part, when it is trying to be funny, I think it does a pretty good job. But I, I think it, it can be a little hard when there is like a long period where it is kind of serious. The only point where I feel like the exhibition, I kind of like it, is there's this extended scene in a local, is it like a strip club? I don't exactly know what it's to a call bur- that. It's a burlesque, burlesque club. club. There you go. Where you have Elaine, she's kind of reunited with these two people who are part of, it's like a cult, I guess, but maybe more of a coven. I'm not exactly sure what the correct word is. But she reunites with them and two of the main members are basically just unloading these two monologues that kind of go together just kind of saying basically the ideologies of the cult and it goes so long and it's just these really like long monologues and i think they are kind of awkward but at the same time like the way they're delivered kind of just makes me laugh like it's so serious and like i guess the whole that whole scene basically talks about how they're saying that like in order for a woman to kind of reach self-actualization and like find a man whatever first they have to you know live up to the expectations of a sex object and then they will be treated as a human kind of and then kind of they'll twist it in this little feminist slant of like oh well you're doing this for yourself, but you know you still have to do these other things first. So it is kind of this backwards ideology that kind of goes together with how society is in a way. Like it does kind of preach this autonomy to women, but at the same time you have to meet these like certain expectations to find romance. So I think that those monologues, like they're awkward, but it definitely, the point of the movie becomes clear to me in that moment. And then I like too, you have that, and then it's juxtaposed with this image of this woman doing Um, a very tantalizing burlesque act on stage. You kind of go back and forth between that. And so it is a really interesting contrast. And that scene is great visually as well. I love that scene, yeah. It really is. And it's very Twin Peaks-esque, that whole scene. It's it's all red, these Mm -hmm. big red curtains. But then the dancer on stage is wearing this like glittering blue outfit. Uh So... I don't know what you could say about like the colors and kind of the meaning there, but you you were talking about like this these contrasting yeah. ideas, and then you have these very sharply contrasting colors mm-hmm. at the same time. Even though Bella, there are some things that she does that maybe might be too self indulgent, whatever. She still has these moments that are just so incredible, and you're like, this is a amazing filmmaker, and it's crazy that this is only her second movie because she. Her vision is so well-defined to me, even if, you know, it doesn't always work. Still so much better than most sophomore efforts anyway. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's take a little break and then go to Fun Facts. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Hit me with the Fun Facts. Um, So I don't have too many Fun Facts. I feel like... For the most part, there's not like a whole ton of trivia because this movie is pretty new. 
And I say, if you want to look more into this movie, just read some interviews with Anna Biller. She's done a lot of very thought-provoking ones. There's a really good one with AV Club, so I'd recommend checking that out. But did have a couple fun facts I wanted to share here. This is one of the last movies to use an original camera negative on 35mm film, which is believable because the movie is... It looks very 1969, even though it's not the year it came out. It just feels like it. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier that the cinematographer is like an expert in this. That is why... It looks, I'd love to like figure out how exactly he goes about, you know, recreating this stuff. Cause I think it's one thing to, you know, educate yourself and learn what they did, but how to do it in a way that actually does feel like genuinely like it is taking place during whatever area you're emulating rather than just like recreating it, you know, cause it does look so authentic. So I'd be curious to kind of watch him work during the opening driving scenes, which were kind of an homage to the birds when Tippi Hedren's driving to Bodega Bay. I thought it looked particularly oh, it Hitchcock. Looked, oh, it looks so good. I love it. They used rear projection photography that was used to kind of add this like certain sort of glamor that, you know, you can only really get with that. And they've used that photographic technique a couple other times in the movie and every time they use it, it looks amazing. Oh yeah. It's just that unnatural depth of field. I love it. It's cool. I yeah. love that artifice. <laughs> <laughs> so old Hollywood. Later after the movie came out, Biller claimed that many members of the crew tried to, they were like hostile to the concept of the movie and didn't really like kind of the directions it was going, but also just how painstaking shooting would be. So they would kind of try to sabotage it. Like they'd be shooting at a certain location and there would be maybe like, I don't know exactly what the correct title is, but there are people saying like, oh, well, we tried to get a permit to shoot here and we couldn't get one or whatever. They would like flat out lie. And then she would like ask a park ranger and they'd be like, oh yeah, we can get you a permit. No problem or whatever. Things like that are saying like, oh, we only have this amount of time to shoot here and then we have to go. But then she would find out later that there actually wasn't a time constraint at all. And so she had to end up kind of like rehiring people as she was going along, which kind of added to which sounds the stress like of making this. the exact kind of BS that would probably never happen to a, a white male director. Exactly. It's so irritating. That's it's so frustrating. Really, yeah. And to, to add to like the, cause she did make all the costumes for the movie, but I guess for the Renaissance scene, she was really worried because like they were going to be really hard to make. So she tried to hire people and there was one designer who said, I'm not doing that. Even if I had assistance, I won't do that. That's too hard. And so Biller just did it herself, basically. She made all of those costumes. Yeah, it's insane. That's and it took her a really, bananas. really long time. But I guess when you have the vision, you just got to commit to it. The <laughs> way the characters at the carnival are dressed really reminds me of the way that everybody is dressed in the... Uh, Oh, what's the director? I'm gonna. I, I'm a fake fan. Uh oh. It's the director who did the Seventh Seal. It's that oh, movie. Ingmar Bergman. It's, it's, it looks like yeah. everybody in that movie is dressed like the people at the carnival. <laughs> oh yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, except that's yeah. in black and white. So it reminded me too. That scene reminds me of the look of Jacques Demy's donkey skin, which is kind of this warped fairy tale. Which is funny because that scene's kind of a warped fairy tale as well. Is that, a, that is, is that an old stop motion movie? No, no? it's a what am I thinking of? it's a musical starring Catherine Deneuve. Oh, hmm. yeah. I'll have to yeah. check that out. Yeah, it's really good. I love it. But yeah, reminds me of that a lot. But yeah, and then I think I mentioned earlier that she did all the paintings as well. I did. She did like commission a couple artists and then kind of told them what to do basically. But everything you see in this movie, the Biller touch, she did like everything except what like the photography maybe. I think she even wrote some of the music. Like, Whoa. what doesn't she do? Are those your fun facts? That's it. That's it. I'm wow. so sorry. No, that's a wonderful. <laughs> they're great. I loved them. There wasn't they're a good lot. Ones. I'm that's so fine. sorry. Well, you said during during our break, uh, you did say that you already kind of worked a couple yeah, of them into the podcast. I did. So. 
Couldn't help myself. Couldn't help yourself. <laughs> so you mentioned at the very beginning when you were talking that there's kind of the meaning of the film is misunderstood. Yeah. Talk about that. Tell me. Yeah. I want to learn. Well, it's even hard to say misunderstood, but rather Biller's been frustrated because the movie is so provocative stylistically. It looks amazing, obviously, and sounds amazing, and it definitely has this unique style, but she feels as though most reviews, even people that love the movie, they tend to just focus on the style only, kind of, and not really think about the plot, whereas she considers it a very personal movie. She, It's kind of her take on how, you know, this the Elaine is kind of this embodiment of all of the kind of facets of, like, a sex object or kind of the female ideal. Like, she is always like immaculately dressed and has a great body and she's willing to cook for people and she does everything that she kind of is told that she needs to do to win a man which i mean obviously people in real life they don't take everything so literally so she is kind of this fantasy version of what if someone took everything literally of what you're supposed to do basically and so the movie is about how you can be destroyed by that and it also touches on how women by being objectified so often, how it can kind of have lasting effect on you, basically. So there's that, and then she also would get mad when people, you know, would call it a pastiche because a lot of the stuff that Elaine experiences, she also kind of experienced in her own life, and so it's been hard for her because she's like, yes, my production design, like, I worked really hard on that, but that's not exactly, that's not all I was trying to say. I wasn't just trying to pay tribute to these other movies. It was, this is like my own vision basically. And then also the likening it to sexploitation frustrates her because those movies are kind of catered toward the male gaze and they were made by male filmmakers who were exploiting women. And she's like, that's not at all what I was trying to do. And if, and I kind of agree with the fact that those movies, if you do watch a lot of the things that, you know, might be compared to this in reviews, most of them are really inferior. They're really not that great. They're not that stylistically inspired. They might have a couple similarities, but this is so superior to that. So it is, to me, really just this original vision that isn't necessarily an homage. It has a lot of similarities to old Hollywood and, you know, those other movies, but it is very much a Biller movie. So I think I kind of can understand her frustration to see how people will kind of pass it off as style or substance when there is some substance to it even though it is kind of a silly way that it is presented. but I, I guess I struggled to try and pull a message out of it while I was watching uh, it. That's because... how I felt too when I first watched it, because I didn't really quite know what to make of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just so, it's the dialogue is so bizarre, and mm-hmm. the, it is very visually overwhelming. So I yeah. guess some of that stuff, I guess, was kind of lost in me, but not entirely. I, I got most of it, but yeah. sometimes I was like, huh, I wonder exactly what it was trying to say. And But for, for the most part, for the most part, I think it's pretty successful in, in what you're saying. I can see why she would be frustrated by people being like, oh, this is clearly just an homage to something else because it's definitely trying to yeah. do something different. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, too, like how much, if she were like a male director, if there would be, because all the reviews are so constantly, like she's paying homage, she's paying tribute, would it be as rampant, kind of? Because there's always this, this kind of undermining of like nothing here is original, nothing is really her own thing. It's kind of borrowing, and it does in a way, but I think to kind of ignore a lot of the stuff that she does that is kind of original and like subversively told is, it's difficult. Yeah, there. You know, speaking of just just that and just frustrations, I was reading one review of this after I watched it, which. I don't remember what website it was on, but it was, of course, there was some white dude who was writing it, and he was praising it for for being subversive and being different, Uh but then it's like in the second sentence or third sentence, he's like, oh, this, (laughs) with cinematography that would make Tarantino blush. What? And I was like... Yeah, people are just obsessed with comparing. That just seems... 
It just doesn't seem not no. not like it doesn't seem fair. It just doesn't seem appropriate. Well, it's not appropriate because I mean, I mean, his movies are visually stunning a lot of the time and do, you know, in a way this movie does kind of they do look older, but they're not doing the same thing at right. all. Like I mean, of course, some of Tarantino's visuals are inspired by exploitation stuff mm-hmm. and you know so on and so forth, but yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, it's frustrating. <laughs> So I feel like that's why I've kind of even want to talk about it today because when I first watched it, I think, because I like, I wrote my review, I think maybe last like February or something. Um, so it's been a really long on time. Your, on your website? Yeah, my website. Plug for petersonreviews.com. Um, <laughs> you haven't been there. It's yeah. But even then I was reading it and I just don't feel like even then I really interpreted it correctly. And so I think after reading all this stuff with her, you know, following on Twitter and kind of reading her thoughts, I kind of realized like it was kind of time to revisit it just because I wasn't necessarily an informed viewer when I first watched it. So yeah. yeah. It's good to be informed. I think it adds to it. I think now I can appreciate a lot more of what she was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the part where she says the title of the movie? When does she say it? I forgot. It's when I think it's the it's oh, the second like, guy. No, oh, I think it's the yeah. first guy that she's romancing, and they're yeah, on the couch, kind of making out. And he's like, <laughs> "What did you put in my bottle?" And she's like, "Oh, psychedelics, yada yada yada." <laughs> and then he's like, "What are you? Like some kind of witch?" And she's like, "I'm the love witch." He's <laughs> like, "Oh, Blake, it. Blake is gonna be so happy about I loved this it. part." It made me think about because in a lot of uh, interviews, Biller said how she's. Elaine is kind of this Frankenstein's monster of the male fantasy. And so when she says that, <laughs> that's a good way to put that it. is like the encapsulation for me. Like she is very, this very sexy being. But then when she does that, it's like, ah, like this is a little bit much. And I think that's kind of, I don't know, kind of the, point. the summary, I guess, of her character is like, she does all this cool stuff, but she's also not really a person. She's just kind of this entity in a way. Yeah. I do. There's that really weird scene kind of toward the end where Trish goes into Elaine's house and she thinks she's not there and then she like puts on one of Elaine's wigs and like her lingerie and puts on her makeup and that whole scene is very it's so weird but it also like reminds me of that thing of how we all kind of know that being like physically alluring to other people it's kind of like a vapid endeavor but we all secretly kind of want it at the same time and so that kind of plays up to that in an interesting way and then I like how there's the twist ending with that scene of how she has this whole thing where she's like kind of trying to become Elaine in a way and then she discovers that she was having an affair with her husband, and then there's this big kind of fight, and it's it's a lot, but very interesting. <laughs> and she kind of discovers that Elaine is buying into this this game, mm-hmm. and she she I mean I guess she just kind of figures out that that's not really what she wants to be doing, and yeah. she continues to be a, a feminist character. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> she does mm-hmm. the right thing, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, All I right, think that's what we've got. Yeah, it's just some final good. thoughts. Final thoughts. I think this is one of the, I think one of the most underrated movies of the 2010s. There's nothing really like it in this decade. I don't know. You just have to see it. It's such an essential movie from this very singular voice that I think has been so misunderstood. So I think watch it if you do, even though I know Biller doesn't love the comparisons to sexploitation movies, if you do like movies like that, might want to check this out. If you like old Hollywood, check this out. There's just a lot of stuff going here for those who really love cinema, but also just are looking for an anomaly of a black comedy, I guess. It's I yeah. think my final thought is just it's worth it's worth the price of admission for seeing a well done, tasteful and funny tampon joke in a movie. That's true. It's worth it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I think I agree with you what you said. I think it goes on a little bit too long. I'm in it for the jokes, I'm in it for for the message. Mm-hmm. The visuals are really great and it, it is really it's very different. But yeah. 
I don't know if this is a movie that I'm going to revisit anytime soon because <laughs> it's not, it's not, I don't know. It's really more your style. It's not really my style. So I liked it, but yeah. I think I that's what I call my, it my style. I just think it's so unlike anything. I think I just gravitate toward movies that I have a hard time really comparing it to something, at least like a modern movie when I can't that really compare sense. it to anything else. I'm just like, like when I can't compare, like even if I don't even like it, I'm still just like, this director is brave. That's so why I'm you like Mulholland them. Drive so much. Mulholland Drive, Mother, The Handmaiden, like all these movies that are so just away from everything else. Maybe I'm, I'm just, just boring. Who knows? <laughs> Don't have an existential crisis here. Aiden. Oh, no. Not, not a recorded existential crisis, at least. I can look back yeah. on it in 10 years and be like, oh, he was young then. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Let's, uh, we'll give a couple of recommendations, and then we will go yes. on to the next thing. Yeah. So before I give out my kind of just usual movie recommendations, I do recommend people check out, even if you didn't love the movie, whatever, I really recommend listening to, there's an episode of the podcast Switchblade Sisters where the critic April Wolf talks to female filmmakers about their favorite genre movies. Um, and so she had Biller on recently and they did the Joan Crawford movie Sudden Fear. And that's a really good episode and a really good way to gain insight into Biller's identity as a filmmaker. So... Look at that, and then I also really recommend reading Megan Garvey's MTV News long-form piece, Female Gaze, Lana Del Rey, I Love Dick, and The Love Witch, which talks about how a lot of work by female artists is misunderstood, and she kind of draws the parallels between those three works or artists, I guess. But I love that piece. I go back to it all the time. But in terms of movies... Before you move on, I will say... For listeners who are interested in listening to that episode of Switchblade Sisters or reading that article, Mm -hmm. I will put them as links in the description of this episode. So you can click and go right to them. Yes. And I also highly recommend listening to Switchblade Sisters anyway. Very good guests on that. Very good movies that I've never heard of. You could listen to just about any podcast from Max Fun and be very happy. You honestly could. Yeah, Yeah. it's fantastic. So movies I did. (laughs) It's funny because there was... Talked about Joan Crawford just now. I feel like I'm just really obsessed with her lately. But um, I just watched this movie of hers called Possessed from 1947. And that is similarly about a woman who is destroyed by her romantic desires. And that one's kind of overwrought and I think pretty dated. But Crawford's really fantastic. and But it does have really great style like this movie does. I also highly recommend The Stepford Wives from 1975. That one is also a really interesting take on kind of the female experience in the 1970s, but there's like this kind of sci-fi horror twist that is really interesting. And it's also um, based on the book by Ira Levin, who also wrote Rosemary's Baby, so he does a lot of really interesting stuff as well. Those are all my my plethora of recommendations. I really had a lot this Excellent. Week. You know, it's funny. You always recommend things that I have never seen, <laughs> and, you know, occasionally I'll watch one of your recommendations to try and catch up, but... I can't wait until the day I can go back through and just watch everything you've ever recommended. Oh, wow. Because that'll be fun. That'll be fun. No, I need to watch some of your stuff, too, because there's a lot of stuff that you've brought up that I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what is that? Uh, <laughs> so it's good that you actually went with some of the more maybe socially progressive kind of woke stuff to recommend, <laughs> because I I went with, I guess, the stuff that would frustrate Anna Biller. But How dare you? How dare I? But it is stuff that... <laughs> to bring it back around that you recommended that I watch. Um, and it is stuff that she was definitely channeling for the look and feel of the film. Uh-huh. So uh, they're both Russ Meyer movies. Oh, One no. of your favorites. I do like Russ Meyer. Yeah. Uh, I, for, for the dialogue, really similar dialogue to this movie, not really similar aesthetics, watch one that we actually did an episode on, uh, Faster Pussycat, <laughs> Kill Kill. 
really similar kind of in-your-face dialogue. Yeah. Except that that movie is much more violent. They do a lot more kind of – it's a lot more angry. They're much angrier. Yeah, it's not as much of like a message movie as The Love Witches, but no. a lot of like similar – I think a lot of similar style in that. So that's the thing. Pillar says she wasn't emulating some of these movies, but I feel like there's she a lot of definitely influence. There's some influence there. I think maybe it's just subconscious, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one is Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert's film, uh, Beyond the <laughs> Valley of the Dolls, which is also – I love that movie. I know you love that movie. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't love it as much as you love it, but uh, I was definitely – it was educational <laughs> for me. That movie's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of the craziest Just movies I think I've it. ever seen. Oh, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's comedic mm-hmm. for sure. So that one's got some, some more visual similarities, yeah. I'd say, to The Love Witch. Mm-hmm. So those are my recommendations. Well, if you would like to hear a little bit more or a lot more of us talking about movies, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere you find podcasts, or on our website, uwpodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter at The Filmcast, or you can follow us on our personal accounts at Aiden Walkero or at Blake W. Peterson. If you want to write us with a suggestion for a movie that we watch and talk about, you want to share your thoughts about an episode, you can send us an email at cinemadventurepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you like the show, please, please, please share it with a friend. Or if you really want to help us, write us a review on iTunes. That would be really awesome. If you want to follow along with us, next Monday we're going to be watching Kira Kurosawa's High and Low. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Did you know Peruvians have their own type of Chinese food? Or that Vietnamese food is heavily influenced by French cuisine? Have you ever wondered what other cultures' drunk food is like? Explore these topics and more right here on the Soundbite Network. My name is Didi Madigan, and I'm the host of Home Plates, a podcast all about food. Catch up on the first season of Home Plates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. New episodes air every Wednesday. Seattle Seahawks have the best offensive line in NFL history. Kyle Seeger is the better Seeger brother. Mark Hell Foltz is the best player on the Sixers. Hashtag trust the process. Okay, we don't actually believe any of these things, but if you want to hear our thoughts on topics like these, tune into the Boxing Podcast with Chris Ankiko, Alec Dietz, and Andy Amashta every Friday on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.